Do you feel a shiver up your spine from fear? Yes, it's another story from the Nightshade Diary. You know what that means. Check under the bed and make sure no one or nothing is there. Is the closet door securely shut? Then leave your disbelief behind. Amp up your imagination and hang on tight for another ride into terror and mystery. And like all good horror stories, just imagine it's a dark and stormy night. And remember, screaming like a little girl is permitted. The Castle with Seven Staircases Contributed by Anne Lady Selsden I cannot give the names of this particular castle, which has existed for centuries. At one period, it was one of the various residences of Cardinal Beaton, when his private life was somewhat akin to that of Henry VIII, and like Henry, he inclined towards variety. But unlike Henry, when Cardinal Beaton tired of love, he wasted no time in trials or investigations, and the lady, with or without encumbrance, was quietly removed. The scene of these removals possesses no less than seven staircases, and the castle walls are so thick that when alterations were taking place, we understood how simple it had been to brick up an unfortunate mother and her infant whose skeletons were brought to light by the workmen. One of the seven staircases was associated with a strange psychic phenomena. Whenever he came up or down this particular staircase, we always heard the sound of a child's toy cart being slowly dragged across some unseen floor. Creak, creak, went the wheels. How unlong to oil them! But where was the cart, and what had become of the child who had played with it? Once again, we owed an explanation to the workmen. At whilst repairing the wall, under part of the staircase he discovered a cell-like windowless room. The floor was thick with dust, and a little wooden cart stood forlornly in the middle of the room, its child owner represented by a pathetic heap of bones. Starved to death, said someone. The cart is preserved today in the castle. The bones received Christian burial, and the ghostly creaking has ceased for all time. I cannot say I encountered the castle's worst return, but my little son Patrick not only saw but heard things, which to this day he has never forgotten. As I mentioned before, Patrick and I first came to the castle on a visit to my husband's family and my Victorian mother-in-law, who had arranged a nursery with a competent nurse for her grandson's especial benefit, was considerably displeased when I told her that as Patrick and I always shared the same room, we had no use for conventional nurseries or nurses. Such a declaration, which swept away the tyranny of the accepted idea and destroyed the law laid down, and the detestable words, it isn't done, caused endless discussion. But I was firm, and Patrick and I were installed in an ancient bedroom hung with tapestry and a short winding stairway in one corner of the room led to a door opening into a small anteroom on the next floor. It was said that the conspirators who had pledged themselves to rid the earth of a bad man came up the staircase to reach their victim. But the dark deed of long ago didn't trouble me. Patrick knew nothing about it, so we slept peacefully until I was awakened by the child asking me in a whisper who were the men who had just gone up this staircase. You're dreaming. There aren't any men, I said. I saw them, he persisted. The night light showed them quite plainly. Listen, what's the noise 
over our heads, just as if people were fighting. There was certainly a sound of some sort of a scuffle, which I dismissed as coming from rats. But when we were once more settling down to sleep, Patrick started up. Look, look, he cried. What dreadful eyes they've got. Do make the men go away. Don't you see them creeping down the stairs? Oh, that one is the worst. And he clung to me in terror. Although I did not intend to capitulate and accept the nursery, I could not possibly allow Patrick to be frightened out of his wits. I decided to give the room another tryout on the following night. However, the same phenomena occurred, and the little boy watched the murderers cautiously creeping up and down. He saw eyes filled with a lust of cruelty and revenge, and as before, we listened to the scuffling overhead. I was never certain whether my mother-in-law knew that she had put us in a haunted room. At any rate, she made no sign when I asked for a change. The tapestry is lovely, but just a little gloomy, don't you think I hazarded? The majority of Scottish castles are associated with a long series of tragedies, many arising from feuds between the clans or border warfare. And in Scotland, haunted castles and hereditary apparitions linger more persistently and have longer leases of existence than in the South. Some bond of a bygone passion must certainly exist between my nameless castle and Claypot's castle near Dundee, which Cardinal Beaton built for Marion Ogilvy, daughter of the first Lord Airlie, after she became his mistress, in order that she could signal from one of the upper windows to her priest lover and advise him that she lived only for his return. On the anniversary of Cardinal Beaton's murder, the wraith of Marion Ogilvy appears at the trysting window and calls in vain upon his name. But whether the legend be true or false, I like it infinitely better than the stories of the Cardinal's Lido loves, who disappeared in the castle of the seven staircases when he tired of them. Two Ghosts I Have Seen Contributed by Winifred Graham The name of Winifred Graham needs no introduction to the reading public, which has always appreciated her striking novels, and I cannot do better than allow her to relate her experiences in her own words. Two Ghosts That I Have Seen I've only definitely seen two ghosts in my life, writes Miss Graham, and in each case they chose an unromantic setting. No ancient baronial hall of romantic moonlight night in the still country for these apparitions. One of them appeared in the train, the other many years ago in an old-fashioned four-wheeler. So, now for the occurrences. I will take the train first. I was traveling from Hampton Court to Waterloo one morning and was lucky enough to find an empty carriage at Hampton Court. At Thames Ditton, the next stop, quite an ordinary-looking man got into the carriage and sat down at the far end from me. We took no notice of each other, and in the usual course of events, I should have continued reading my paper without giving him a thought. But I suddenly had a most dreadful feeling about him. In fact, it was so strong that I could hardly support his presence, and something seemed to say. Take in every detail of that man's appearance, because you will have to identify him again. Naturally, after receiving this psychic warning, I thought he might be going to attack me, and I decided I would get out at the next station, which was Surbiton. But in the meanwhile, I obeyed the inward order. Without appearing to observe him, 
I registered in my mind his face and figure, the color of his clothes, and especially a little pile of four books fastened neatly together with straps. So uncomfortable and nervous did I feel that I was ready to jump out of the train at the next station, but rather to my amusement, before I had time to rise to my feet when the train drew in at Surbiton, my fellow traveler calmly took his books under his arm, stepped out, and marched off. So much for intuitions, thought I, and telling myself I was very silly, I dismissed the incident from my mind. Surbiton is always a busy station in the morning, and a minute later some other people got into my empty carriage, and the train proceeded to Waterloo. I closed my eyes for a little, and opened them at Vauxhall to see which station we had arrived at, when to my unutterable horror I saw the very man seated in front of me. On his knee were the four books in the straps, and he sat very still, gazing quite calmly and normally at me. At this time, being unacquainted with the psychology of ghosts, I was frozen with terror. As I knew he had left the carriage at Surbiton, I got out and ran the whole length of the train, desirous of nothing except to put distance between us. Then I jumped, panting into a compartment, terrified lest I should meet him again at Waterloo. Alas, this ghost story has no sequel. This experience was the beginning and the end of my phantom man, and I shall never be able to explain it to myself, or to cease regretting my folly in doing a bolt. Now that I am versed in psychic knowledge, and am deeply interested in the occult, if such a happening were to occur again, the last thing I should do would be to run away. How often I have longed to know what would have happened had I asked the ghost the time, or waited to see whether he would vanish when we reached our destination. Shall I ever see him again? For I am convinced that he meant something in my life. Anyhow, this ends ghost number one. The second occurrence took place in Norfolk Street, Strand, many years ago, when Mother and I, coming out of a business building one dark, wet evening, about six o'clock, had asked the hall porter to whistle for a four-wheeler. It was before taxis were to be seen regularly on the streets, and we stood in the porch of the building until the cab came up. Then I noticed the dark figure of a man, apparently wearing a loose black cape, who was leaning out of the window of the four-wheeler, gesticulating violently. I was certainly impressed by the strange blackness of his clothes, and it crossed my mind that he was either making signs to the driver to stop, or else wishing to indicate that he was going in the wrong direction. Nothing uncanny injured my mind. Then, to my amazement, the cab drew up empty, and as the porter advanced to open the door, I said quickly to my mother, I saw the figure of a man in the cab, waving his arms. He must have been signaling to us not to get in. I'm sure if we do so, we shall probably be killed. Again, I had a surprise. My mother, who believes in ghosts and is psychic, being the seventh child of a seventh child, entirely discarded my warning. She would not be advised, and she stepped into the cab. I had no choice but to follow, and we had not been two seconds in that four-wheeler before the horse bolted, swerved violently across the road, and came to a standstill on the pavement landing the cab against the railings of the opposite building. Naturally, we got out as quickly as possible, and I can only surmise that the man in the black cape deliberately frightened a horse and made a shine order to clear us out. I cannot help believing if we had remained in the cab 
something very terrible would have happened and I should not be here today to tell the story. Another ghost with whom I came in personal contact was strangely enough not seen by me but by my great friend the late Mrs. C. N. Williamson, the well-known authoress. This happened in the early days of motoring when Mrs. Williamson and her husband had kindly invited me on a motor tour through England and we were staying at an old-fashioned hotel in the country. I won't mention its name as the proprietors might object. Once again the ghost appeared in the morning. It seems her favorite time so far as I am concerned. And just as Mrs. Williamson and I were walking down the winding staircase to the breakfast room, she suddenly caught me violently by the elbow and pulled me on one side, saying in a very alarmed voice, I saw a man rushing up the staircase, and I really thought he would knock you down until he seemed to go right through you and vanished into that wall. He looked like a highwayman. I declared that I had seen nothing. Privately, I thought she was a little bit imaginative, but we laughed and went on our way without giving the matter another thought. Some months later, we saw in a paper an account of a strange discovery in the same hotel. The premises were being enlarged, and when the walls on this very staircase was taken down, it revealed a skeleton of a man, which the paper said was supposed to be that of a highwayman. This was undoubtedly a very strange occurrence, and what Mrs. C. and Williamson saw must have been the apparition of this unfortunate man. I wonder what tragic story was connected with the place. It often strikes me as strange that we should be so scared of spirit appearances, as according to hypnotists and the testimony of psychical research, each of us has a ghost inside him, or her, and this kind of science insists that we are haunted by a spiritual presence of whose existence we are rarely, if ever, conscious. The theory is that this spiritual presence is that of our unconscious personality, the nature of which so far has not been determined. We are now standing on the edge of a new world, formerly unknown to us, and there are no papers so absorbing as those which deal with psychical research and discuss the personality of man. I myself, what am I? And what is the ego? The spirit world is so closely connected with our own that we ought to be seeing returns all the time. And when once you begin to make inquiries among your friends, most of them have a true ghost story to tell you. As a fitting conclusion to my own experiences, I've asked my mother to relate her story of the ghost of the man who hanged himself on a magnolia tree in her riverside garden. Mrs. Graham's Ghost Story Many years ago, my husband and I came to live on Hampton-on-Thames. We had the prettiest house imaginable, and one summer evening we were sitting in our punt close to the edge of the lawn. The moonlight made everything as clear as day. My husband suddenly exclaimed, Just look at the magnolia tree. Do you see anything on it? Why, of course, I replied, and I looked again. Oh, dear, I cried. I believe a man is hanging there. We scrambled out of the punt and rushed to the tree, seeing the man all the time quite clearly. Then he disappeared. Of course, we said to each other that we had imagined things and put it down to the effect of moon magic. The following week, when we were at a ball at Colonel Harfield's, my husband was introduced to a charming lady from Molesley, whom he presently asked to dance.
and directly she heard his name, she said, "'Why, surely you must be the Mr. Graham, who has just bought St. Albums, that lovely old house, where the man hanged himself on the magnolia tree.' My husband at first said nothing about what we had seen, but late in the evening he begged his partner to tell him the story. "'I really don't know the details,' she replied. "'I believe it was a footman who got into some kind of trouble, either over money or one of the maids.' It's quite ordinary, but people insist that his ghost haunts the garden. So it was not our imagination, and I don't mind acknowledging that I was glad not to renew the hangman's acquaintance. We have never seen him again. St. Albon's was certainly an exciting house to live in. One day my maid rushed into my room to tell me that a new maid had seen a lady wearing a low-necked dress standing against the wall of her bedroom, surrounded by a bright light asked if she were frightened she replied oh no not a bit she was so beautiful that i was only sorry when she disappeared hearing this i thought at once of nell gwynne who had lived at st albans so named i suppose after her son the duke of st albans and i remembered that i had a photograph of her portrait in the beauty room at hampton court take this downstairs i said to my maid lay it on the kitchen table and see if edith notices it the end of the story is curious. Directly Edith saw the photograph, she said excitedly, Why? This is my lovely lady. That's her exactly. So I felt quite certain the vision was the beautiful Nell Gwynne, especially as the bedroom in question is in the oldest part of the house and may have well been occupied by pretty witty Nellie when she lived here. Now, for a very strange occurrence. Early one morning, when I awoke, I saw to my surprise three people standing outside my window. One of them was a woman in a dripping wet dress with her head hanging down looking perfectly dreadful. She was supported by two men and I had only time to call whatever is the matter before all three vanished. I jumped out of bed and looked out. There wasn't a sign of a living soul. But when my maid brought my early tea she said there had been a dreadful accident on the river as a motor car with three occupants had overturned while being ferried across from the island close by. The two men were alive, but it had been impossible to save a woman sitting in the car. Then I knew that what I had seen was in the nature of the supernatural, but as it happened, I had especially noticed the face of one of the men. A long while after, I read an account in a newspaper which said that Tommy Hand, a famous Brooklyn's motorist had been found gassed, and it was believed he had lost his nerve as a shock had caused him to give up his track career. A motor car in which he was traveling with friends had slipped into the Thames at the ferry at Tags Island. He was not driving, so he forced a door open and remained in the car under the water trying to rescue his friend's wife. After he was dragged out, he insisted on diving repeatedly into the river, but it was too late as the woman was already dead, so his efforts to rescue her were in vain. Above this account was printed a picture of the dead man, whom I instantly recognized as the man I had seen holding up the woman on one side when the three persons appeared outside my window. I kept the newspaper report and pictures in my possession, both of which now illustrate my story. Here is the account of Tommy Hand's death, the ace who lost his nerve. Widowed Lady William, in whose house Tommy Han 
famous Brooklyn's motorist, was found gassed, declared yesterday that he believed he had lost his nerve. He had a top-room floor in Holland Park Avenue, based water. Lady Williams, whose husband was Sir William Willoughby Williams, told me. Tommy determined last year to make a comeback on the track at the age of 44. His heart and soul were in the game. He practiced, built the car himself. It was a failure. It was scratched by the authorities because it was not fast enough. Tommy never got over the disappointment. He said to me, I think my nerve has gone for racing. The day before his death, he discussed with me the report of a man who had committed suicide through financial trouble. I said it was a ridiculous thing to do. He smiled, but he never threatened to commit suicide himself. I saw him on Friday afternoon, then I went out. When I returned, I noticed that the bathroom door on the first floor was closed. I called a friend and we broke a window in the door. A guy swing in the room was on and Tommy was lying dead on the floor. Tommy's real name was Albert Piercy Han. In recent years he had been a consulting engineer, but he could never forget the thrill and glamour of success on the track. In 1923 and 1924 he carried all before him at Brooklyn's. Then came a shock which caused him to give up his track career. The motor car in which he was traveling home with four friends slipped into the Thames at the ferry at Tags Island. Han, who was not driving, forced the door open but remained in the car under the water trying to rescue his friend's wife. When they pulled him out, he dived repeatedly into the river again. But the woman had died from shock. His rescue efforts were in vain. An inquest will be held on Tommy Han today. Two of the appearances were certainly ghosts of the living. The woman had already passed, and the only explanation seemed to be that thought bodies capable of transferring itself wherever it pleases. But, after all, everything is possible when one happens to be, like myself, the seventh child of a seventh child, and for us the veil between the seen and the unseen is often very transparent. However, most human beings are either receptive or insensible to psychic phenomena. Mediums, clairvoyants, and seers belong to the first named. Materially inclined matter-of-fact people come under the latter category, although sometimes even matter-of-fact people have the supernatural forced upon them. The Ghost of Lady Boston at Chiswick and some other haunted houses by Maud Folks. The Thames at Chiswick is a very different proposition from the Thames at Hampton, but after I had read Mrs. Graham's ghost story, I remembered an old house at Chiswick which in the days of my youth was a well-known finishing school. Boston House is situated in Burlington Lane, Chiswick, and the Dark Passage, which is a feature of my story and runs underneath the lawn, is thought to lead to the river. The original house was probably some kind of a religious institution, and the numerous cell-like rooms which open out of the larger ones support the supposition. In the early and middle part of the 19th century, Boston House became a finishing school, passing from one principal to another, until during the late 80s and early 90s it was run by Miss Wilson, who later on transferred the name and the pupils to the fashionable environment of Eastbourne. It is a quaint place, standing well back from the road in a little square connected with a house, and the iron gates are those through which the immortal Becky Sharp hurled Jonathan's dictionary when she left Miss Pinkerton's academy saying, Thank God, I'm out of Chiswick. It is a vexed question 
whether Boston House or Walpole House on Chiswick Mall represents Miss Pinkerton's Academy, but the former was a school for young ladies as far back as Becky's day. Both the houses, however, possess ghost stories. Walpole House is haunted by the phantom of the tragic old age of Barbara Cleveland, and Boston House by a lady who loved not wisely, but too well. When I wrote my own past, I mentioned the romance connected with Boston House, which for some reason was discredited by Lord Boston, who disapproved of my alluding to it. But as my claims to truthfulness were backed up by local tradition and the testimonies of members of families who had lived in Cheswick for generations, Lord Boston did not dispute the question any further. I came to Boston House as a schoolgirl of seventeen, incurably romantic, enthralled by the lure of things past, and especially intrigued with what I described to myself as ghosts. Once settled in my new surroundings, I found a ready-made ghost story waiting for me, and I was especially attracted by the large schoolroom, originally the ballroom, which had a beautiful marble bas-relief over the fireplace of Venus and Cupid, flanked on either side by medallions representing the Lord and Lady Boston of the old-time tragedy. Lady Boston had soon fallen out of love with her husband and given her whole-time affection to General Lord Fairfax, who lived in a house bearing his name overlooking part of the gardens of Boston House. It was said that during Lord Boston's frequent absences, the lovers met, unsuspected and undetected, until Lord Boston received a private warning of his wife's unfaithfulness, and one night, when he returned unexpectedly to Chiswick, he discovered Lady Boston in the act of writing a letter to Lord Fairfax, which left no doubt as to the nature of their relationship. In those days, aristocratic husbands were not the easy-going individuals of the present day. When the divorce court exists to help the non-suited, 17th and 18th century aggrieved husbands either place their wives out of reach of temptation by transferring them to a home from home in the heart of the country, or else they promptly challenge the home wrecker to a duel. Occasionally, some temperamental husband took the law into his own hands and removed his wife, not to a country seat, but to another world. This is what happened to Lady Boston. Her appeals for mercy fell on deaf ears. Her cries for help weren't heard. But she fought desperately for her life, and the walls of the print room, so called from it being papered with curious engravings, was bespattered in places with her blood. When Lord Boston realized that he had killed his wife, he was faced with a problem of how to dispose of her body, and remembering the underground passage, he carried the corpse downstairs, forced open the entrance, and passing down the damp tunnel, he threw the dead body into the Thames. But Lord Boston had not reckoned with the unstable quality of any kind of water. The river rejected Lady Boston's body, which was washed up by the tide a few days later, and buried with great secrecy in a corner of the garden. How well I remember the ivy-covered mound, unmarked by any memorial, until years afterwards, when Boston House passed into Catholic hands, and the kind nuns placed a cross on the forgotten and nameless grave. In my day, it was considered a proof of great daring to slip out into the garden after dark, and to pick an ivy leaf from Lady Boston's grave, and I still have one of those badges of courage pressed between the leaves of the book into which I first told the story. It was rumored that Lady Boston walked, but I never saw her, although sometimes there were strange noises at night, which made us shiver and shake. After the tragedy, Fairfax House remained uninhabited for years, 
it was definitely and badly haunted. In fact, so badly that some of the occurrences have been published in one of the monthly magazines dealing with psychic phenomena. A few years ago, Boston House came into the limelight when the Sunday Express published an interview with Mr. Arthur Clayton, then living in the neighborhood. Mr. Clayton told the Sunday Express representative that while cycling past the house on the previous evening, he was startled by the sudden appearance of a woman in the road, wearing what he described as fancy dress. The apparition, for it was certainly an apparition, stretched out her hand, her lips moved, and her face wore an expression of great terror. She then turned around, walked towards the house, and disappeared. Miss Edith Rushwood also saw the ghost, undoubtedly that of Lady Boston, but this time she was not so kindly disposed towards the living. According to Miss Rushwood, the apparition raised her hand, in which was a tiny dagger, as of wishing to strike someone, and Miss Rushwood, too frightened to move, stared for some minutes at Lady Boston, who once again disappeared in the direction of her old home. Boston House has been spared the fate of so many beautiful old houses through the public spirit shown by its present owners, Chiswick Products Limited, who have preserved it not only as an interesting souvenir of old Cheswick, but as an up-to-date club for their women and girl employees, without destroying or disturbing an inch of the original building. The large annex, which contains the restaurant and the theater, is built out on one side of the garden, and it covers the actual site of Lady Boston's grave. This was not known at the time of the construction of the new buildings, as someone ignorant of the tradition had said that the artificial ivy-grown rocks at another spot marked Lady Boston's grave. This was incorrect. The rockeries and grottos only date from the 90s, when Roman Catholic nuns lived at Boston House, and these grottos usually feature in most religious gardens. The picturesque grounds, with the ancient cedar, under whose dark shade and successive generations of girls discussed what the future might have in store for them, are unchanged. I cannot describe the Boston House of today as a club. In my opinion, it is more of a school, essentially progressive, never finishing. When I saw the extraordinary chances of self-development offered to these girl workers, and how no expenses spared by the directors of the company to teach interest and help those willing to help themselves, I could not help contrasting their advantages with those of the young ladies of my day. A little less veneer and some useful mansion polish training might have made who knows all the difference in many of our lives, my own, once described by a candid critic as good material spoilt in the making, included. It would be ungracious to dismiss Chiswick without mentioning something more about Walpole House, where Barbara Cleveland passed part of her dishonored old age, a creature hateful to herself and to others, who had removed to Cheswick after the nullity of her marriage to Beau Fielding had been pronounced, and lived in retirement with her daughter Barbara's illegitimate son by the Earl of Oran. In July 1709, the Duchess developed symptoms of dropsy, which swelled her gradually into a monstrous bulk, and terminated fatally on October 9th. She was buried four days later. No monument marks her resting place, and the vaults under Cheswick Church hold the remains of the worst and fairest of the mistresses of Charles II. Tradition has it that the ghost of the Duchess is occasionally to be seen at one of the windows of Walpole House, entreating someone unknown to give me back my beauty. It is curious that as a child and a young girl, I came in contact with four haunted houses, three of them close to the Thames. I made the acquaintance of the first 
when at the age of ten I was sent to school at Hatton Hall, Wellingsboro. Even at that time I was a dreamer of dreams, a strange little creature, buffeted hither and thither apparently, only useful in providing a family grievance, consequent on my mother's extraordinary methods of bringing up her only child. At ten years old I understood the appeal of the beautiful, so I was able to appreciate the oak staircase at Hatton Hall, dominated by a marvelous stained-glass window, where on sunny days one could figuratively bathe one's feet in pools of living color spilled on the stairs by downward reflections from the window, on which Vive Vivas, the motto of the Vivians, was repeated three or four times. Even now Hatton Hall reoccurs to me as a very sinister place. Sometime in the 18th century, when the hall was occupied by two brothers, the tragedy happened, like so many others, inspired through jealousy and greed, and the younger Vivian hated the elder so much that, on some flimsy excuse, he challenged them to a duel in one of the attics at the top of the house. Here they fought until the younger brother killed the luckless owner of the family possessions, and terrified at the consequences of his deed, he hid the body in an oak chest and went abroad where so he gave out his brother had preceded him. Time passed, and Hatton Hall remained uninhabited, although I suppose it must have been maintained ready for the return of its owner, and there was no suspicion of foul play until the oak chest made its presence felt, and the decomposed body of the elder brother was found inside, with his broken rapier beside him. I do not know what became of the mortal murderer, since... A duel hardly comes under the heading of murder, but his earthbound spirit and that of his equally earthbound brothers were said to reenact the duel at midnight in the old attic, and if you cared, and dared, to go to the foot of the staircase leading thither, you would certainly hear the clash of ghostly swords overhead. Children are often supersensitive to psychic things, and looking back I distinctly remember how peculiarly the environment of Hatton Hall affected me. There is no doubt that youth has a streak of cruelty in its composition, and the big girls, as we called them, used to torture the nervous amongst the younger girls by shutting a selected victim in the haunted attic on half-holidays. As often as not, I was chosen for this frightfulness, and I see myself, a trembling child sitting in thy semi-darkness and dust of the attic, where successive generations of spiders had spun their silken ropes, until they hung in festoons across the leaded windows, a quantity of old furniture which had been dumped in the attic took on grotesque shapes in the shadows, and I have expected to find some dreadful creature hiding behind it. But what I most dreaded was the possibility of seeing the wicked Vivian wiping his blood-stained sword on his coat-tails, as we were told had been the case. When this ghostly ordeal was over, I fled into the garden which joined the parkland and tried to forget the attic and its terrors. It was impossible." and I was thankful when my mother took me away and deposited me at Beaconsfield. Before I went to Boston House, we lived at Petersham, and I was initiated in the foundations of music and education at Elm Lodge, Petersham, once the home of Charles Dickens, who wrote part of Nicholas Nickleby there. Elm Lodge was essentially an early Victorian house, with nothing ghostly about it, and the dear old principal, the late Miss Frances Holland, who believed in ghosts, encouraged me sobrosa, to believe in them. We were quite close to Ham House, lying dreaming in the meadow besides the Thames, and as no house in England possesses such wonderful scenic possibilities wherewith to stage a return, Miss Holland never tired of telling me the story of the old Duchess of Lauderdale, 
who still revisits the scene of her worldly intrigues. Her boudoir remains exactly as it was in her lifetime, and the servants asserted that in the small hours they often heard her ebony walking stick tap-tapping across the floor. Lady Lauderdale does not come back in the splendid arrogance of her beauty, but appears as an old woman who once terrified the butler's little girl out of her wits when she woke up and saw the Duchess scratching the wall near the fireplace with her yellow bearing fingers. Strange to say, when the wall was examined later, various important family documents were found hidden there in a secret recess. Miss Holland and I used sometimes to wander down the long avenues leading to Ham House, when the rest of Petersham was asleep, hoping to meet Lady Lauderdale, who passed that way in the full of the moon. I shall never forget the thrilling joys of expectancy which these walks represented, especially as they were entirely unorthodox from an educational standpoint, and I had also stolen a march on my mother, who described the supernatural as stuff and nonsense, often appealing to heaven to know the reason why she was afflicted with a difficult daughter. Miss Holland and I never encountered Lady Lauderdale, but we saw the old house transformed in the moonlight, when the statue of Father Thames seemed wrought in molten silver, and the bust of the Roman emperors in their dark niches glowed in the cold fire of the moon. At this time Miss Cooper, a friend of my mother's, lived at the old palace on Richmond Green, where Queen Elizabeth died in the gatehouse on the morning of March twenty-fourth, 1603. Needless to say that the old palace was supposed to be haunted. It was an amazing place, and I reveled in its memories and its ghost, especially, as Miss Cooper told me, almost in confidence that she never willingly went into the gatehouse after dark. She also related a curious story about Elizabeth, having been warned of her approaching death by the apparition of her double, and while this double was seen walking about the rooms and passages of the old palace, occupy your mind with something useful, said my mother, but I am glad I never followed the prosaic road approved of by her. I have always found my greatest happiness in things psychic. In these, the true believer is never disillusioned, and as a possibility that the psychic world are unlimited, it never fails to hold those who adventure on its unknown, unpathed waters and undreamed shores.